this is it, John. The last podcast of 2017. Oh, God, what a year. Have you been reflecting at all on 2017 and what it's meant for you in, in the world? I'm not a very reflective person. I'm That's just not kidding. True. You're, you're, you are very reflective. You're, I'm you're... just kidding. No, I have. I, 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 um, this has been, a, it's been an interesting year for me because I think that, um, you know, I've been through this. I've been through this kind of metamorphosis with technology, where, you know, a decade ago, when I was at the New York Times, I was writing pieces that were in defense of technology, and I remember I got into a public. D- debate with um, with the New Yorker when I was at the Times uh, um, with George Packer about the importance of Twitter and social media. I then got into another public debate with Bill Keller when he was editor in chief, that almost you know got me in trouble. But I I felt so strongly about about the importance of social media uh, that I felt the need to defend it to to both these people. And yet now I feel like I just think it's. It's um, it's really disheartening what what has become of technology, and I and I what I've been reflecting on, and I don't know the answer to this is if people are inherently good, and that technology somehow makes them do and say bad things, um, uh, because they do say good things on these platforms, or if um, if it's the other way around that we you know seeing people in an empathetic way makes us act empathetically and um and nice to each other and that technology allows us to really be the people who we really are which is not so nice that's what i've been reflecting on that's interesting you know one of the things that i've been thinking about a lot during the course of this year and it's been an astounding year i mean just filled with with so many unpredictable firsts um but the thing that i've been thinking really from uh probably from you know january 21st onward is how it, it does really seem like we are all living in a new world now and that feels different i, I remember when i was younger you know when I, when I was in my 20s and, and sort of starting out in, in the world as a, a worker bee i i sort of felt that the the generational cleave that most people feel between how their generation behaves and how their parents' generation did, that it wasn't so significant, that, that more or less I was operating in a world that that uh, was recognizable to the people who'd, who'd succeeded in a, a generation before me, um, which seemed unusual because, you know, one of the sort of truisms of, of life in America, at least, is that each generation really does define its own course and, and, um, and change the culture with it. And what I felt most profoundly in 2017 was that Obviously, we saw how different the world had become, and social media, as you mentioned, is a driving force of that technology at large, but social media in particular. But what was most sort of poignant to me is that we're all living this truth for the first time. It doesn't matter how old you are. Everyone is living in a new world and and doing things differently. The, the, The job that I do, the job that you do, it's hardly recognizable to the people who had what would have been considered somewhat similar jobs if they even existed five years before. The way that the president communicates is uh, unrecognizable to, to, to any career operative in, in D.C. The way that our bills get passed is, e- even in itself, it goes through a, a sort of um, social media campaign that is, is very, very, very different from the systems that that predated, I'm thinking of, of tax form, you know, first and foremost, which, you know, seemed like it was um, a, almost a, a veritable Kardashian in its own right, as it was being rolled out by people like Gary Cohn and Ivanka Trump. So I think that um, we all kind of recognized a, a new world in 2017. We're, we're slowly embracing it, and I wonder what will happen as we become more and more familiar with it. I, I hope it gets better. Oh, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Speaking of getting worse before it gets better, um, so there's, we don't have a, a guest this week. You, you and I are the guests this week, and I think that we should sit down and go through some predictions for what we think may happen in 2018, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the things that are looming in the, the not-too-distant future. So, and we should assume we should also note that these all of these predictions are 100 percent guaranteed to come true. Right? Oh yeah, of course. I mean that's why I've invested in Bitcoin. Uh, <clears throat> my paycheck now goes uh, skips my bank account, goes directly into my 
Bitcoin accounts. Uh, and uh, this week, I, I was paid nothing. Um, next week, hopefully, it'll be a million dollars. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, let's talk about that afterwards. So I'm going to start first um, uh, and ask a question that's been on my mind uh, since I interviewed... Um, so you've interviewed quite a few political folks this, this year on the podcast. And I, the question is, how does the Democratic Party define itself in 2018? Is it more centrist, more conservative, more liberal, more of a complete fucking discombobulated mess? Like, what, what do you think they are going to do when they try to attack this problem of winning back seats um, in what could arguably the, be the most important election cycle uh, that they've had in a very, very long time, barring, of course, the one that, you know, Donald Trump won. So I don't know, and I think they don't know, but I'm going to actually answer the question from the perspective of what would seem to be a reasonable course of action for, for how to proceed. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm not thinking about this as a journalist or from the perspective of a political operative, but, but just somebody who actually is, is sort of a, um, a, a concerned citizen. We're taping this at the end of December, and, and one of the, the, the trending political topics this week is some sort of infighting that's going on within the Democratic Party about whether to move to impeach Trump if the Democrats get a majority in the House in 2018. And I think a lot of projections suggest that the Democrats will probably pick up dozens of seats or up to dozens of seats. Um, Projections also suggest, however, that uh, Democrats are probably unlikely to to win a majority in the Senate or at the very least um, are profoundly unlikely to – to reach the two-thirds majority that would be required to actually sort of censure and move on impeachment and get Trump out of office. So impeachment is a political act. Um, the, the legal ramifications of getting rid of Trump are, are very, very unlikely. So it would make me think that moving to impeach Donald Trump does not seem like a wise thing to do for the Democrats. It would uh, at foremost divide what is already a divided party, and also it would divide them towards a goal that's unrealistic. But I've been thinking about this a lot because it, it reminds me of – 2010, 2012, when there was this movement you would see on the right that, that kind of came out of the, the rise of the Tea Party. The a, ABO was what people used to call it. Anyone but Obama. What? ABO? ABO. Yeah. Do you remember <clears throat> that? It was um, I don't anyone the but. the ABO movement. I remember, you know, of course, the like the Sanders-related version of it, but I don't remember, in this one, but I don't remember ABO. So that, that was the anyone but Obama, okay? Anyone, anyone but Obama. I, I feel like you used, you used to hear that um, uh, along with the rise of the Tea Party when, when um, the Republicans were fielding what was a very sort of unsexy crop of candidates, um, and they ended up settling on Romney after flirtations with Santorum and Gingrich and, and others. And the feeling was, a- anyone but Obama will do. And I think that the Democrats are, um, are in the similar territory, which, which is not winning ground. Anyone but Trump. Just get rid of the guy. And as we saw with the Republicans, that's not a unifying message. So the well, Democrats... The, the Democrats have never had a unifying message. I mean, it, it, if you go look at... There's slogans from from you know political campaigns you know for the last forty fifty sixty years. It's like half of them are you're like what? I mean I you know. Well, the Nick, Hiller- the good news is I'm coming to you with a unifying message today. Oh, give it to me because I because because I'm with her. Did not feel like it was telling me <laughs> what the Democrats were actually going to do. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you, you hate hate Donald Trump as much as you want, but you got to give him credit for the for sticking to the make America great again, even though he didn't come up with it. It definitely felt you like you knew what they were trying to do. So what is your unifying message that we're going to... Well, you know, I, I think similar to the Republicans glommed on to health care, um, uh, the, the Democrats do have to find a footing with this new tax reform, or if you want to call it reform, or, or, or secondary tax bill that, that reforms the tax code, not to upend it or overturn it, but to let it at least point them in, direct, in the direction of recognizing that there, there are many problems that, that this electorate, that this polity faces, but the, the most significant one is that the whole underpinnings of our economic system, the, the, the ones that guided basically a century of American growth, is over. And the party that is best positioned to figure out how to 
protect American workers, how to continuously retrain them for evolving jobs. And retrain is a loaded word, but to be able to, to put them in positions to succeed as so many more jobs are mechanized or or um, or involve artificial intelligence. The, the party that learns how to protect the American worker, particularly the American middle class worker, seems well positioned to succeed in the generations to come. And well, the, the sooner the Democrats can, can, can move forward to come up with some sort of coherent plan to actually look after that worker. It's not, it's not the full-fledged socialism of Sanders. It, it's not the, the um, more sort of anodyne uh, retraining programs that, that, that uh, Clinton and her acolytes have talked about. I'm not giving you policy solutions, but I am just saying that... No, I think what, you're completely right. I think you're 1,000% right, and I think that, you know, I've, I've read tons of reports this year on how many people are going to lose their jobs as a result of technology... You know, there are some that say as few as 24, 25 million, and some that say globally as many as 200, 500 million people. Um, and I think that, you know, there was a, I remember, and right when Trump had gotten into office and, um, and the White House was saying, oh, that's complete nonsense. Automation and AI is going to, is a hundred years away. It's not something we need to be dealing with. And I think that <clears throat> when you look at, what has happened just with healthcare alone, uh, where the Republicans don't want to give poor people healthcare? Can you imagine what they're going to say when when we say, "Hey, you've got to give these people uh, that are losing their jobs a universal basic income"? And I think that uh, I think you're right. If the Democrats say well, we're going to find a solution to this, um, they could become the party that that does find the solution to it. And I think you, you mentioned the universal basic income, which is a, a, a huge fixation in, in Silicon Valley. And it's one of those things where Silicon Valley may be on to a good idea, but it's unfortunately discussing it in terms that are very Silicon Valley-ish, like in just sort of inhuman um, uh, platonic cave. It, it doesn't seem like they're talking about real people and, and, and people who are at parts of the wage curve that they don't understand. But but this does seem like – put it this way – it technology is changing every single facet of our society, how we communicate, how we relate to one another. It would be nice to find technological solutions that can show how um, how the geniuses in Silicon Valley can actually positively affect uh, life for the rest of us. Because, because the prevailing narrative that we mentioned in the intro to, to this episode really is that they're just messing shit up for everybody. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. I think they've messed shit up for everyone. And there's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've, I still speak to a lot of the people who used to work at these companies that have since left. Twicebook. Twicebook uh, <laughs> <laughs> is the name of Twitter when it's bought by Facebook. Uh, <clears throat> no, Twitter, Facebook, I mean, you know, SpaceX, all these different companies, people that still work there, people who have left. And, and a lot of them feel a tremendous amount of guilt for what they have wrought. The people that are still there... Some of them are still there because they think they can fix it. Others are still there because their egos are more important than what happens to the planet um, and their bank accounts and so on and so forth. But uh, but there is definitely a movement, and it is a small one, but there is a movement of people who um, who regret what they did uh, and what they've built and wish that um, uh, you know wish that they hadn't have done that. Um, there was a there was a piece this week I saw. On um, uh, <clears throat> on Medium uh, from uh, from Rick Webb, uh, who is a, a big you know early internet person, and um, it was his his mea culpa for uh, for kind of the role that he and others played in um, uh, in in what the um, what the internet has become. Um, uh, and and it was just fascinating to see people kind of talking about that and thinking about that, uh, and, and more people, you know, really kind of wondering what went wrong and and you know what could happen next. There was one line that a lot of people highlighted that said, you know, what if Silicon Valley's core beliefs, even the benign ones, are wrong? Uh, what if we were never meant to be a global species? What if Zucks? wrong when he says our greatest opportunities are now global what if information doesn't want to be free and i think that hmm. you know and i think that's it's a that's really powerful and i think that that the fact that someone wrote this and you know lots of people are reading it and sharing about it and discussing it i think is is actually a good sign for for what may happen in 2018 but who knows who knows you know if this is powerful enough to to change anything well, let's stick with the geniuses up in Atherton for a second. 
um, one of my questions to you is we've been dealing with an onslaught of names in the Me Too movement, uh, people, largely men, who've committed uh, uh, egregious um, uh, crimes uh, in, in the workplace. When do you think the Me Too movement is going to really catch up with Silicon Valley? I don't think it is. I think, um, you know, I think that the, that we saw a few people, you know, that were swirled into the Me Too movement from Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, but there's a lot of names I've heard behind closed doors and, you know, um, through, you know, messaging platforms that are, um, that I don't think will ever uh, be taken down. And I think part of the problem is that there is a, a a feeling and a fear that these people are incredibly powerful uh, and um, have an incredible amount of money and will stop at nothing to de- to to defend themselves and their money and their power and their honor and so on and so forth and and there are people who I've heard that have experienced terrible things uh, at the hands of um, certain venture capitalists or CEOs or, or so on and so forth but um, they won't come out publicly and say it because they're afraid that they'll be sued off the face of the planet. And, um, and I think that, you know, it's just a, it's an example of the fact that, um, that it really what this has come down to, um, is a, a shifting of power and that, uh, this is once again, there's a, there's a kind of a giant ice wall, uh, surrounding Silicon Valley when it comes to morals and ethics and, and that bullshit line that they're there to make the world a better place. Um, in reality, you know, they are the new Wall Street, the new, oil barons, the new, you know, political influencers. And, um, and they, they are the people that don't necessarily have to play by all the rules, which is, you know, sad and pathetic, but the reality of what's really going on there. Is a big part of that the fact that because these companies make so much money, you know, we're, we're looking at a world where we, you know, um, we could have $4 trillion tech companies in the next 18 months or so, um, probably one next year, that, that they can, that they can, you know, handle their 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 payoffs or their um, their sort it's of not, disclosures. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not so much payoffs because Harvey Weinstein could handle his payoffs. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's it really is. It's power and intimidation. I. I it's interesting um, <clears throat> living in Los Angeles and um, and meeting with people who you know work in both tech or in Hollywood or you know anything. What was so fascinating when the Harvey Weinstein stuff first happened was that the perception of why it happened. Um, there were people in tech that told me, oh, it's because of social media. And finally, you know, people have a voice again and this, that, and the other. And in Hollywood, uh, the people I spoke to about it said, oh, no, no, no. It has nothing to do with social media. It has nothing to do with even the story coming out because there were stories that came out earlier. It was the fact that Harvey Weinstein had lost power. Um, he was no longer the most influential person in the industry. There were now a dozen other people who did what he did. Uh, and I think that, you know, it's not one or the other. I do think that social media and, and the incredible reporting that went into these stories and, uh, and, and the feeling around Donald Trump getting away with what he got away with, th- th- that all played a role. But at the same time, there was that factor that, uh, that Harvey had lost the power that he had, and, and that was why he fell. And, mm. And um, partially why he fell. And I think that in Silicon Valley, there are some mean people there. You know, there are some really bad people um, that do really bad things and that are, that are just amoral and um, are just, you know, have no qualms about destroying other people's lives um, or intimidating or terrifying uh, for their own gain. Um, and... And I think that's partially been why, for me, I've become so disenchanted with with technology in Silicon Valley is because I remember arriving there years and years ago as a young technology reporter and and kind of being like, this is amazing. They're changing the world. They're making it a better place. They're doing this, that, and the other. Um, uh, Twitter's giving a voice to people that never had it before. Um, uh, and um, And seeing... The reality was that, that that these people were just full of shit, you know, a lot, mm-hmm. so many of them. Um, and so I don't think that the Me Too movement is uh, is gonna um, is gonna hit too close to home when it comes to Silicon Valley. But I do think that there will be other repercussions that will that will land on them there. 
All right, next question for you. Do you think in 2018 that we're going to have a whole new class of Bitcoin billionaires? I think that, you know, it's interesting that the, the, the people that I've spoken to about cryptocurrencies and so on and so forth, um, their predictions have been pretty, pretty right on. I'm, I wrote about it in 2013 uh, and earlier, um, you know, about what Bitcoin was and why it was going to be such a big deal. And it definitely took a little longer than people anticipated. Um, uh, in, you know, I remember interviewing Mark Andreessen uh, back in 2013, and he said, you know, this is something that we're focusing on, we think is going to grow rapidly, is going to change the way we send money and the financial markets work. Uh, I remember writing a story um, uh, about this guy who sold, um, who did the first Bitcoin transaction where he transferred 30,000 Bitcoins to, um, to someone for two Papa John's pizzas. Um, and... Uh, um, that became the first transaction in history, which would have would have ended up being worth about uh, $600 million today, give or take a few million, um, had he held on to those Bitcoin. But but that when I look back at those stories, and I just looked back at them last week, um, the predictions were all kind of right on that Bitcoin will eventually hit $20,000, $30,000 a piece, that there will be other cryptocurrencies, that the blockchain will change the way we... We built software and do banking and so on, and we're starting to see the beginning of that. And I think that uh, I think that you're going to see um, a lot of people that have not cashed out yet. Um, you know, uh, even though Bitcoin's market cap is hovering around three hundred billion dollars, forty percent of that three hundred billion dollars is owned by one hundred people, which are the what they call the Bitcoin whales. And um, and those some of those guys are going to start cashing out at some point, um, and uh, and you'll see uh, and you know what they decide to put their money into um, will kind of change the direction of some of the investing that takes place in uh, in Silicon Valley. Hmm. So, are you putting your money into that now? By the way, are you um, are you currently uh, buying a Bitcoin? I'm not buying any Bitcoins. I've been playing around with um, with some of the uh, the what they call altcoins. Um, uh, which are these alternative coins where, you know, they're essentially like penny stocks. Um, and so, you know, I just goof around with them for fun every once in a while. Um, I'm just pulling them up right now. I have, um, I have some music. Uh, I have some Ripple. I have some, uh, some RDD, uh, red coin, which is like a social media coin. Um, uh, but I only have like, you know, I have like 20 bucks of each. It's not, it's, it's not like a... I'm not like day trading because uh, I wouldn't know what the hell I'm doing. But it's fun to like, you know, just kind of see how it works and and um, uh, and and kind of do it, it gives me a good way to kind of do some research into what these companies are. Um, and there's like there's lots of really fascinating ideas out there. There's, you know, people that are, are building crypto that will just that's just for social network. I mean, sorry, for just yeah, just for social networks. There's others that people are building where it's. Um, it's just for social good. Uh, there's one um, where they're kind of gamifying um, what uh, what cryptocurrencies are and how you spend them and use them and so on, kind of in a in a, in a new and unique way. And um, and so I, I think it's I think it's really fascinating. I, I really do. I think that uh, it's clearly terrifying the banking industry. They can't stop talking about it. Um, you know, there's now the CBOE and the CBE. Uh, the Chicago exchanges are offering futures. The Nasdaq's talking about it. Um, you know, Goldman's talking about putting up a trading desk for Bitcoin. This, you know, I think that, that we're just at the very, very tip of what this is in uh, 2018. And my prediction will be uh, will be a, a big year for cryptocurrencies, whether it's Bitcoin or RDD or whatever it is. Um, but I do think that's that's the future. Hmm. <clears throat> All right, my turn for a question. Speaking back, I just want to jump back to that that Me Too movement for a second. Two thousand seventeen was the was the Me Too movement with a vengeance. Um, it, I mean, it is astounding how a couple of articles uh, that were incredibly reported literally ch- like ch- created a tsunami. I mean, even the reporters involved um, are flabbergasted as, as to how much it, it you know it changed. And I do think a lot of it was as a result of Trump not. Trump being voted into power even after saying the things he said. But but my question for you is, I don't think the Me Too movement is going away anytime soon. I think that we're still kind of 
you know, scrapping up who's, who's involved, and there will still be a lot of those. But what movement, if you had to predict, do you think will consume 2018? I'm going to sort of um, uh, answer that a little bit backwards. I, I think that Me Too is going to be it, – it's an unstoppable movement and, and obviously an, an incredibly important one. But I think it's actually going to pivot to become a political issue in 2018. I think right now it is a social and cultural issue as it should be, and I think that you're you're beginning to see it in uh, as a sort of work safety issue. Um, one major media company recently announced that um, anyone aware of this kind of behavior has to speak up, or else they'll they'll you know uh, be subject to, to major ramifications. Um, but I think that one step that a lot of these cultural movements have failed to take in the past is to become purely or, or rather uh, largely political movements as well. Um, hmm. uh, and, and, when, and when you think about um, uh, other causes um, uh, of, of great import in the last decade or so, the environment, uh, safe and clean food, these are things that were, were important but like non-ballot issues. I actually think that the way that women are treated in, in the office – and in society, and and um, and and the capital punishment, and and, and you know um, uh, ways of uh, adjudicating people who break those laws, that will become a voting issue. And I don't think it's a gendered issue. I, I don't think that you're only going to see female candidates for office running on a sort of Me Too political movement. I think that it's going to become essentially, I hope, almost like um, a required. Um, badge you know you have your um you know the nra offers a rating to you know every office holder there should be some sort of you know a p political association or or, or 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 ngo that offers ratings to every politician i don't know what the criteria would be but to assess what their rank or score is when it comes to gender equality but the thing is okay so i totally understand that but <clears throat> again like my belief is partially that 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 the movement happened because people are so partially happened, you know, and I want to stress that, but, but, but because people are, were so kind of flabbergasted that Donald Trump could be overheard saying that he grabbed women by the, you know, I don't even want to say the word on, on our podcast. And yet he won. And, and I think that, you know, that and that there are so many women that support him, and I think that um, that how can so if if sixty plus million people still voted for him after hearing that, how do you think that's going to become a a political point for anyone on the right? I I think the fact that Trump won even after the Billy Bush tape has more to do with. Um, the fact that so many tens of millions of people distrust the media more than they feel like gender inequality is an issue. And I think that um, one of the things that, that the sort of you know evil geniuses within the Trump campaign, and I'm, I'm thinking of, of, uh, of Bannon and, and Trump in particular in, in that sense, um, were able to do was recognize that they couldn't defend the president, that locker room talk was all nonsense, but they could essentially paint this um, uh, situation as, as just the latest battle in a larger media war. And, and they're very good at making that point because there are certain people who do truly feel like the media does lie to them. But it's also like this is a, this is a, a long-term thing, but I think it will get uh, gain footing in 2018 because what we're you know where we're reached now, where we've reached now in this sort of cycle of this conversation is we've acknowledged through – Tremendous reporting, as you say, I extreme gremlins of the culture, people who've just behaved in, in shameful, horrific ways. But what we're also finding is that th there are quotidian shameful ways, um, uh, uh, manners of behavior that we're also like as a culture still accepting and that we're not going to accept those anymore and that they are um, – we have to act very fast because so many of them are actually ingrained in, in American life. And I think that there are a lot of um, – people who be, who believe in that passionately and there are also people who realize that that um that that the populace does too and, and that these are important voting issues so it, it'll be interesting to have this conversation in five years because i think that a lot will have changed and and i hope we will look back at the billy bush tape and say oh my god i can't believe that we ever uh, that that 
you know, that the Electoral College was ever swung for a guy who basically didn't deny saying these things. Do you, so do there's, there, there's Jack you, Kelly coming in the room. Hold on a second. Hey, Jack, ha- go, go to mom. <clears throat> are you having your BBC interview moment? That's, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Jack, go to mom. I've, I've, uh, Jack is here. Jack, go downstairs. I love you. Bye. They're not in here. <laughs> monkeys are in the other room. Monkeys. Is that new? Yeah, yeah. This is Daddy's podcast thing. I'll tell you about it later. Go downstairs. <laughs> I love you. Where did you get it? I got it at work. <laughs> I got I got it at work. We're keeping this in the tape. <laughs> can, can we can we talk to Jack for this podcast and get his predictions for 2018? Jack, what do you think is going to happen next year? I don't know. <laughs> you want to say it? On, you want to say it on on tape? Come here. Come here. Then you got to go downstairs. Come here. Come here. You don't want to do it? Okay. All right. Jack's too shy. All right. Love you. Bye. All right. Now a question for you. Um, Mm. Let me pull up my handy list here. I love that your son walked in the room and the first thing he said is like, whoa, where'd you get that podcasting (laughs) equipment? (laughs) We live in a mobile world. We Um, live in a mobile world. Okay. So one thing that I – that this is sort of extemporaneous, but – um, our colleague Mike Cosa just just uh, published a report about this. You know, Facebook is now acknowledging that it has problems both on its platform and and optics issues. That that um, as as Tim Wu mentioned on this podcast not so long ago, people are angry at Facebook, and it doesn't um, necessarily deliver the addictive quality that it once did. People used to love it and not be able to get enough of it. Now I think people feel like there's a lot in there that they don't want to see or that scares them. What changes do you expect to see from Facebook in 2018? I think that um, – I do think that they are serious when they say um, that, uh, that they are um, – when they say that they're, that they, they're trying to change. I, I think that they – there's been an a incredible upheaval internally about what the purpose of the company is and, and if it's doing good for the world and this, that, and the other. But that also comes at odds with – Two things. One is Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, power and what that and the fact that he wants more and it's an insatiable thirst to to continue to grow. Um, you know, you or I would probably own Facebook and be like, "Holy shit, we have two point x billion people that use this thing." Whereas Mark Zuckerberg looks at it and says, "Holy shit, why aren't the other four point x billion people using this thing um, on the planet?" and and I think that um, his goal is to continue to grow it. But at the same time, you know, he's also, I think, has a realization now as a father of two kids that, um, that, that the world is a, is a pretty crazy place. The one thing I did hear from someone close to him recently um, was, you know, they were said to him, like, Don't, aren't you worried about what's going on with social media and the, the, and you know, not just the Trump administration, but the way people are using it, you know, Kim Jong-un, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Zuckerberg's response was that he saw all of this, that life and, and power and who's in office and whatnot is like a sin wave. Um, you know, those, those, oh, like a sine curve, you mean? Yeah. Like a sine curve where you, it curves up, it curves down, it curves up, it curves down. And, and I, and, um, and that was the response. My response to this person, of course, was, well, was the Holocaust one of those two? You know, uh, so I think it's kind of a bullshit response from, from Zuck, if that's what he did say to this person. But I also do think that, you know, that they're trying to figure out how to, how to you know, maneuver where they are and what they're doing. And there's no question that they are completely aware that this thing that they have built and that they run um, has grown to a, a, an astronomical size that cannot be controlled, and and that there are things happening on the platform that cannot be monitored in real time, and um, and cannot. And by the be... way, it, it, should, it should be okay to admit that you know. I, I yeah, feel like completely. And I, because I, I, they're a publicly yeah. traded company, and because he's you know created as a boy genius, they have to project the sense that they totally are in control all the time. But when you have two point five billion monthly active users, you can't be. And there's got to be some way to lean into that. Uh, and marshal the goodwill of the people who who use you, because um, if you don't, this is my sort of um, extra credit question to you. Uh, it seems like there's a chance that that some 
there, there's an opening for a newer version of Facebook that is a, a scale product, but but a little more exclusive, much more highly monitored in a way that allows people to feel like they can speak their mind, but but not have to worry about Russian influence campaigns. Do you think that will happen in 2018? I, is someone working I, on that? Yeah, I think so. I think that 2018, if you if you're asking for my prediction of what's going to happen, I think that. Um, uh, I'll give you a three-pronger. Uh, one is um, Twitter is actually going to do probably okay um, because Snapchat has kind of screwed up and uh, and advertisers are looking for a second place to be able to put their money. They can't just put everything into Facebook and Google. Uh, um, they need you know they need a Twitter, um, and so I think Twitter will probably be okay, which which kind of sucks because I think the platform really needs to kind of change and adapt to make the world a better place, but I don't think they're going to. Um, the, there's that. I think the, the second thing is that Facebook is going to end up in some sort of political trouble, um, whether it's with the EU or with American, you know, in the DOJ or whatever it is, but something will happen uh, where they will face uh, the wrath of a government that is not happy with them. Um, do I think that they're going to be, you know, broken up? Not yet. And I say the word yet because I think that if they continue on the path they're on, they, they very well could be. But I do think that they'll face some massive fines or they'll have to change some things in Europe or whatever it is. Um, and then I think that the, the third thing is is that we will we will see some sort of networks. And I don't want to say social networks because I think that we are all completely burned out on social networks. Mm-hmm. Um, I know more and more people that are deleting all these things from their phones. I no longer have anything on my phone that is social network related. I took off Facebook, Instagram, Twitter months ago, and it's quite possibly the greatest thing I've done since I got an iPhone um, a decade ago. Um, and I still check the stuff, but very, very rarely. Um, and it doesn't consume my life in the way it did. And I think that people... They still want to be able to share articles and photos of their family and this, that, and the other, but they're they're looking for new ways to do it that are not a conversation with a billion people, um, where where you tweet or comment on the wrong thing in the wrong way, and and you become a trending topic or are facing the mob for twenty four to forty eight mm-hmm. hours. Um, <laughs> something something we all know too well, and yeah, and yeah, I think sure. that. And and so one of the, one of the things that I've seen happen, there are a couple of companies working on things in the Valley, small startups and so on. But the thing that's really interesting is is the social network that I use the most is text message. You know, right, I right. I no or email longer probably, right. I mean, no, not email. Those that's for the old people like you. Okay, uh, that's true. <clears throat> um, no, I have I have several group text threads um, that I'm on and. There's a one that's you know about eight people that I talk to Bitcoin about Bitcoin stuff about. There's one that's that's just family. There's you know there's a dozen people on there, and we and it's me and my sisters, and we share pictures of our kids, and my and people can heart them and like them, and so on and so forth. And um and the you know other networks for I mean other other groups for for other reasons. And I think that what's so interesting is is we always technology with technology we always try to find the thing that is is the least obtrusive, right? And and we are, and that is turning out to be text messaging. It's the thing that is, hmm. um, uh, and I think that, so there's a world in which the, the you know, people always wondered, why didn't Apple buy Twitter? Um, and they do, why do they need Twitter? They have the biggest social sure. network on the planet, which is text messaging and iMessages. And I think that um, more and more we're, we're going to see people people doing things like that. And Slack is a perfect example of that where right. it's public but private. Um, and so – The so, only yeah. social messaging platform that it seems like everyone truly loves. Yeah. Because you can't – because no one's going to call you an asshole on there because you, you know, spelt something wrong or put a comma in the wrong place or – because they misunderstood a video, whatever the hell it is, like mm-hmm. it's it's not it's just not what happens. And I think that um, you know, is Twitter going to be around forever? Probably in some form or another. Um, uh, is it going to continue to grow? Probably not that much. Um, uh, but you know, uh, Facebook, I think, is, is in the in, is in kind of a very similar camp. Like, uh, and and if they do want to grow and, and gain user base and so on and so forth, they, these these places have to adapt. All right, last question for you, Nick. What's your biggest Trump-related prediction for 2018? Uh, I, I do believe that we are finally, 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 finally hitting Trump fatigue. And it's been a couple of years, but in t- the beginning of 2017, 
all I could talk about was Trump. All I could read about was Trump. All I could breathe about was Trump. It was, it was so perplexing. It was so, none of it made sense. I wanted to know how he breathed and thought and, and everything. And, um, and now, and everyone I knew was the same way. And it was what we talked about at the dinner table. It was what we talked about on the internet in, in news meetings with you. And now we still talk about it, but not even remotely as much. And, um, and I don't remember the last time someone said to me, it's months, but the last time someone said to me, did you see what Trump tweeted? Because it doesn't matter as much anymore. We know it's going to be outrageous and stupid and, and outlandish and so on. And so my prediction for 2017 Trump related is that, um, uh, is that we're, we're going to kind of, stop caring as much what he has to say and we're going to start looking at other people in the political spectrum uh, uh, and, and seeing what they have to say because we're just I, we're, 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 I believe we're beginning to kind of be over it a little bit well it'll be interesting right because this has been this year is going to is going to be hard for him he's going to lose a lot of close advisors and cabinet members um as is always the case you know or, or often the case but um dina palisich is leaving rex tillerson is likely to be leaving gary Cohn seems likely to be leaving after tax reform at some point it, it, it would seem likely that jared kushner um would be leaving um if uh if the advances in the Mueller probe seem to um make him more politically toxic if he goes, does does Ivanka Trump follow him back to New York? There, there certainly are many worthwhile things he could that, that Kushner and Ivanka Trump could be doing for POTUS from New York, whether it's raising money, working connections, um, who knows? And he's going to be essentially dealing with the blowback of the the tax bill that the, the, the Democrats are going to be running all of their 2018 elections on the platform of this is the guy who raised taxes on the middle class. And w- with the intensified heat of the Mueller probe, it, it, it's going to be one never-ending hellscape for him. And I wonder if you know, if that channels his sort of most mischievous instincts or if that forces him to, to be desperate. to you Because know, when he's his most effective as a uh, social media troll, it, it's when he's kind of, you know, got his finger on the pulse or he, you know, he does have some sort of... Or his back against he, the wall, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, because he, he does have a, a, a natural radar that is really good um, at, at, at having at least the, his finger on the pulse of the news cycle. But but when he's desperate, we and we've seen this in the past, and this is kind of what you're referring to, when he's desperate, it, these tweets can seem, for lack of a better term, lame. They, they, they just don't connect. No, no, I, I agree. But he is also, but he also has the ability, you know, to kind of argue with myself a little here. He also has the ability, like when something crazy is happening, like the Mueller probe or whatever it is, you know, he can happily go out there and, and say something just insane that everyone on Twitter and whatnot will be like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. And, and that consumes the news cycle for 48 hours. And there's a few people that are like, guys, Russia, Russia, Russia. Right, no, that's true. He did it the, the day um, that uh, Mike Flynn, um, uh, you know, uh, got his pardon. It, it, or not his pardon, but, um, uh, yeah. you know, got his form of immunity. It, it, you're right, you know, he's, he's an incredible obfuscator and, and, uh, and, and media pivoter. But but yes, but I but and and you know but I do think that we I do think that we're no longer at the point where I I used to wake up every day and think to myself, holy shit, I can't believe he's president. Like literally, I would wake up. I mean, it was just like this surreal thing. I remember, you know, speaking to so many people at other news outlets that would say the same thing. You know, holy shit, I can't believe he's president. And I no longer wake up and think that. And I think, oh. All right, we've got three more years of this, hopefully. Um, And and I no longer wonder what makes him tick because I realize now that it is all narcissism and nothing else. Um, It's all Trump and nothing else. And I think that that um, uh, and and therefore it's like the magic is gone, the intrigue is gone. Um, And so I I I just you know I think that. I just don't think his tricks are going to continue to work inevitably forever in the way that they have, um, and I think that's going to that's going to kill him. It's, it's you know it's going to be the worst thing that ever happened to him. 
So, okay, so I'm, I have a uh, last question for you before we wrap up, and you can go and show Jack how to use your uh, podcasting <laughs> equipment. Uh, so, and it's a Trump question, because it's just ignore everything I said before. I still have this <laughs> burning question. Uh, so, in public and private, we know this. Everyone knows this. Whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or a, if you voted for him or you didn't, I mean, people I know that voted for him admit these things too. Um, he's a he's a he's a pig. He's a sec, you know he's been accused of sexual harassing women. He's made fun of entire ethnicities. He's ridiculed the media, which actually some a lot of people think is a good thing. Um, USA Today put out a, a recent op-ed where they said that he isn't even worthy of cleaning the toilets in the White House. Never mind being president there. And yet, you know, with this vile behavior, he still today has a forty-five percent approval rating. Um, uh, and he is a self-proclaimed hero from the tax bill for 2017 that just went through. Do you think, and this is my question, do you think that Trump will ever, ever face a reckoning that he so much deserves, and is there a chance that it could happen in 2018? It is a great question, um, and I think that you know, to some degree, it was answered in uh, in that great piece that our colleague Gabe Sherman did about Steve Bannon, where Bannon sort of um, in his in his global tour to 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 stoke the fury of the international alt right, for lack of a better term, uh, Bannon recognized that the his movement, the Trump movement, whatever you want to call it, faces lots of threats from from all sides, um, and it seemed. You know, in, in Gabe's story, like the the threat that Bannon takes the most seriously is the threat inside of Trump's own cabinet. Um, that the the chance of of his cabinet moving against him, invoking the Twenty Fifth Amendment, that all those things are, you know, they're not very likely, but but that they're possible. So, my feeling is that there will not be a Trump reckoning in two thousand eighteen. Both sides still hate each other more, and and both sides. You know, red, team red and team blue seem more consumed with consumed by their own vitriol for the other side uh, than they do for the the guy in charge, for lack of a better term. So I I think that this kind of you know Manichaean world that we live in will will reinforce the same behavior. But I do think that in five or ten years, and I, I'm saying five or ten just because things move so much faster now than they ever used to. But somewhere in the next decade, we will reckon with this period as uh, a moment when when we truly all collectively lost our minds and what what, what allowed Trump to to rise to power um, was that he seemed to actually sort of be most comfortable in a in a period of, of this sort of collective um, uh, uh, id and and I and I don't think he'll be remembered well for that I, I think that there's going to be a, a tragic reckoning so particularly you, so on the right so you think that the Trump's Trump's tragic reckoning is just him not being remembered well, or is there like is there a chance that that the Mueller probe gets to him, or that he, you know, gets caught having an affair in the White House? With you know, I don't, you know, I don't think that I actually, uh, you know, and I'm just speculating here, but I don't think that Trump himself actively colluded, and I think that a- any malfeasance on the part of anyone in his campaign. Is likely to be isolated, and and that pe- you know people may get in a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, God knows I've not seen these dossiers, but but I I do um, uh, think that that Ty Cobb is not entirely gesturing when he seems to suggest that whenever the Mueller probe is done, that that Trump will not be found guilty of collusion. He may be found guilty of other things. We'll see. But I don't think that the real reckoning that's going to matter is going to happen this year. I think that. This year, anything that the Mueller probe digs up will be seen as – if the Mueller probe even concludes by the end of the year. But it will be seen um, on some as a you know, correct accounting of what happened in 2016 by others as a media-infested witch hunt. But I think that there will be actually a collective reckoning about the Trump presidency that happens you know, in a decade or so. And I think the thing that might be most frustrating for Trump is that Trump won't be seen as the input in this era, he'll kind of be seen as the output. In other words, 
we so lost our minds on account of how we connect with one each other, one another now and how we consume information and how we feel about each other and, and the, the thought bubbles we live in and, and the sort of feedback loops that like this is what we, we did. We, we, we wrought this upon ourselves. And I think that is not how he wants to be remembered as sort of an afterthought, as an asterisk to, to a period. And it, um, that'll be the, the, the cruelest joke of all. I look forward to the day that, <clears throat> you know, 20 years from now, providing we don't die in a nuclear holocaust, um, that A, I'm a billionaire based on my $20 investment of some altcoins, and B, that I have to explain to my grandchildren uh, who Donald Trump was and that he is not remembered uh, for anything. Quite, quite well, frankly. in 20 years, I mean, I think podcasting is going to become a, a multi-zillion dollar industry. So um, uh, you won't have to be doing anything. You'll, you'll just be sitting on, on your desert island. But I do think that you will be explaining to Somerset and Emerson. Um, it's just a hunch. But I think that you will explain um, how we got to Donald Trump. Not the world that he made necessarily, but the world we created that led to him and hopefully the, the reaction we all had that um, – uh, that helped us move on from it. I do have one last prediction for 2018. Let's hear and it. And I don't know if it's actually going to happen. I'm going to try to do my expenses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Uh, there's a business in there that, of making it easier, but I think that uh, that no one wants to go anywhere near that. Uh, uh, so... Well, if Reed happen. Hoffman's listening now, there's got to be some sort of, um, you know, w- w- within his his family of investments, there's got to be some sort of app that will like scan your receipts for you and and um, and also reimburse you at the same time. So, Did, yeah, I'll invest your altcoin in that. All right, I'm gonna do it. Um, so, uh, thank you, John, for taking the time to to chat today. Um, we have some pretty incredible guests lined up for the new year. Um, I'm not going to say who they are because I want people to come back and find out for themselves. It's kind of like a not knowing. It's it's like you're pregnant and you don't know if it's a boy or a girl, so you got to come back to find out. Um, and uh, uh, and this has been uh, it's been a great year of the podcast. So thank you. Happy New Year, everyone. All right, tell tell Jack I said Happy New Year. Right back at you guys. Happy New Year to all the Biltons. Yes, near and far. Well, I would say thanks to my guest this week, John Kelly, but. You know, what's the point? If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to all my colleagues at Vanity Fair. Hope you all have a wonderful new year. I will speak to you next year.